0: This week, after a two week recess, members of Congress returned to Washington, DC.
1: The house will be in order, the chair and in the
0: time the that house... they've been away, a lot's happened especially when it comes to COVID-19. Tonight, the World Health Organization
1: for the first time acknowledging it may be possible that COVID-19 could spread through the air more easily than we knew. And with infections now spiking in 39 states, hospitals are facing a crisis with ICU beds along with doctors and nurses now in short supply. July is worse than April, six days already this month. We've broken the record for new cases in a day.
0: Back in March, the president signed the largest stimulus package ever passed in the U.S., a $2 trillion bill to give more Americans more money up front, to give small businesses loans, and to expand COVID-19 testing. Since then, Congress has passed more legislation to help stimulate the economy. But as the number of new cases continues to rise, and as Americans express concern about the economic impact of this pandemic— It's become clear that what was intended as a short-term fix may need another big boost. Members of Congress are still debating what that needs to look like, and they're coming up against some hard deadlines in the next few days. So we wanted to start off today's show by checking in on the economy to see how it's doing and find out what economists say they're keeping an eye on next. Stay with us. Okay, so in the absence of a COVID-19 vaccine, the economy's been having a rough few months. At first, as states told people to stay home and businesses closed, consumer spending dropped. Not a good sign for the economy. The historically high unemployment rate was also not a great sign. But around May, things started to look up. That's in part because some businesses started to reopen. And more people were spending money, including the money they had gotten as part of the one-time stimulus check or as part of their extra unemployment benefits. But now, a surge of cases in states like Texas and Florida is threatening economic recovery. And it's led some officials to roll back decisions to reopen businesses. Now, according to economists from the University of Michigan, we're seeing a drop in consumer confidence, another important factor in measuring the health of the economy and corporate leaders and economic officials are making the case that more health precautions need to be taken in order to reopen the economy safely. In the meantime, another thing that helps spur the economy is reaching a major deadline. You might remember we talked about this on our show a couple of months ago. Here was our guest at the time, Dr. Jay Shamba, an economist at the Brookings Institution, a Washington, D.C.-based think tank.
1: We have this great support going out to people who are unemployed right now that's been really a lifesaver to a lot of families and individuals, Um, but it's going to end all at once.
0: What Chamball was talking about there was a cash boost for unemployed Americans. The federal government started giving unemployed people an extra $600 a week. That's on top of the state benefits they also got. Since then, people have used it to help pay rent or get groceries. And like we said, it's also helped the economy. But many Americans will get their last payment this week, and lawmakers are having a hard time agreeing on whether they should be extended. Democrats say, this has been really helpful, so why not keep giving people the same amount? Republicans aren't as thrilled. They argue that some people are making more money with these benefits than they would at work, and this is actually encouraging
1: people not to go back to work. But that may not be the case. There is no evidence that this is happening in any large or major way in the economy. That
0: was Catherine Edwards, an associate economist at the public policy think tank, the RAND Corporation. She says a lot of people who lost their jobs are ready to get back to work. $600 has been a lifeline for many families during the pandemic. And some experts say taking that away without a buffer could be catastrophic for individuals and the economy.
1: What I would say is that we would further see our economy contract. According to the Bureau of Economic Analysis, 15% of all wage and salary income in the United States last month came from unemployment insurance. It is a huge part of what is financing the consumption in our economy right now. You know, the other risk, right, is that if we cut off this aid, these households are no longer gonna be able to make ends meet in terms of food, health, or housing. So what's the solution? Well, it's
0: complicated. So we asked Dr. Damon Jones, an economist and associate professor at the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy, about a possible solution.
1: I think that they should continue at the level that they've been delivering it. And in order to figure out uh, how to adjust it in the future, I would link the extension of those benefits to
0: what's going on in the economy. So using measures like uh, number of people employed
1: or number of job openings and things like that to decide when that extension will stop. Right now, what we did is we set a deadline and that created a cliff of July 31st. And now we're about to go over that cliff um, and maybe try to climb back up it.
0: As the pandemic continues, people may be out of work longer and have a harder time affording necessities like food and housing, which is especially important in keeping people healthy and safe. According to Edwards, public health and economic health are essentially
1: one in the same. Our economic question and our public health question, they are they are entwined. And our economy will never recover until the pandemic is contained. And these questions have to be looked at in tandem. We can't say it's just the economy or it's just the pandemic.
0: The thing is, the government implemented some temporary emergency measures to ease the financial burden. So did everyday Americans. Maybe you moved in with your parents and stopped paying rent. Or maybe you got a temporary gig after being laid off or furloughed. And now, Edward says, a lot of Americans are going to have to start thinking more
1: long-term. We had a lot of short-term kind of emergency measures, not just in Congress and passing the CARES Act, but most of us did that in our lives, right? And now we have to make the long-term adjustment. Congress has to make the long-term adjustment of how it's going to prop up the economy and households. And we all have to make the long-term adjustment of how we're going to survive in a a long-term recession and pandemic. So what's the skin?
0: Federal stimulus checks and extra unemployment money helped give the economy a boost in the months after the COVID-19 pandemic started, and some businesses started reopening. But as cases have spiked in recent weeks, more places have had to shut down again, and economists as well as CEOs are expressing concern over the state of the economy and are making the case that economic health is tied to public health and that reopening needs to happen slowly. Meanwhile, the federal unemployment insurance, the extra $600 a week we mentioned earlier, is close to expiring. Lawmakers have to figure out whether to continue it, and if so, by how much. But keep in mind, that's not the only thing they're weighing. With state and local governments scrambling for cash and small businesses struggling to stay afloat, Congress has a lot to consider as it figures out what the next stimulus package needs to look like.
1: Friends, your vote is precious, almost sacred.
0: It is the most powerful nonviolent tool we have to create a more
1: perfect union.
0: That was the late congressman and civil rights icon John Lewis back in 2012. He died last Friday after battling pancreatic cancer. In his 80 years of life, Lewis became one of the most prominent civil rights leaders in the United States a 17-term congressman from Georgia, and a champion of voting rights. I got arrested 40 times during the 60s, beaten left bloody and unconscious. But I'm not tired, I'm not weary, I'm not prepared to sit down and give up. Since he passed, many around the country are paying tribute. Some are calling for the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Alabama, the site of one of Lewis's most historic moments, to be renamed after him. In Atlanta, which Lewis represented since 1986, mourners have visited his 65-foot mural that stands downtown, and flags in the city will fly at half-staff indefinitely. But of all the nationwide tributes, there's one that lawmakers and activists say could have a lasting impact. It has to do with voting rights. It's an issue that goes back centuries, and Lewis spent his life on the front lines fighting for these rights. Back in the 1960s, he was a major player in the Civil Rights Movement. A turning point in the movement, and in Lewis's legacy, happened in 1965, a day later called Bloody Sunday. He led a historic march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. But while leaving Selma, Lewis and his fellow marchers were attacked by state troopers. The Major said, troopers, advance. You saw those men coming toward us, beating us with nightsticks and bullwhips, tramping us with horses. And releasing the tear gas. So I was hit in the head by a state trooper, had a concussion at the bridge, but I didn't give up. The violence and injustice of that day gave Congress the momentum to pass the Voting Rights Act of 1965. It outlawed things that were created to make it more difficult for Black Americans to vote, like literacy tests and voter intimidation. It also set up a system of accountability— in which counties with a history of voting discrimination had to get permission from the federal government before changing any voting rules. But that changed in 2013. That's when the Supreme Court issued a major decision that walked back a key provision around it. See, the OG legislation set up a certain formula to figure out who needed to get approval. And it mainly impacted states in the South, because they historically had issues with voter discrimination. And in 2013, a county in Alabama argued that the discrimination the 1965 law was trying to prevent no longer existed, so the data for the formula was outdated. In that case, Shelby County v. Holder, the majority of the Supreme Court agreed with Alabama officials and struck down the formula, and ruled that Congress should determine who has to get approval to change voting laws. Shortly after, a number of states introduced new types of voting protocols—protocols that civil rights advocates say disproportionately impact people of color and create hurdles for minorities to vote. States like North Carolina implemented voter ID laws, which requires voters to show some form of identification at the polls. Studies have found that these voter ID laws negatively impact the turnout of Hispanic and Black Americans during elections. And one civil rights group says that places like Arizona and Texas have closed polling locations, which forces some voters to travel great distances and stand in long lines to cast their ballots. It turns out this move also makes it harder for people of color to vote. These changes that came about after the 2013 decision have gained even more attention recently. As a reminder, it's an election year. 55 million Americans have reportedly cast a ballot in the primaries, but certain states like Georgia faced issues mainly in areas with a lot of minority voters, like voting machines not working and long lines at the polls. Adding a global pandemic into the mix and states expanding mail-in voting access has advocates saying it's more important than ever to protect the vote this November, and that there's more that needs to be done to make that happen. Courts usually weigh in on local and federal voting rules, but activists are saying Congress also needs to get involved just like it did in 1965. So last year, Democrats in the House passed the Voting Rights Advancement Act, which would reinstate federal oversight for states with histories of voter discrimination and restore voting protections for Americans. It's a bill that John Lewis advocated for, and one that Democratic lawmakers say Congress needs to pass to properly honor his legacy. That's because from his early days as an advocate until his final year— Lewis fought for the right of all Americans to vote, and some of the hurdles that exist for minority voters today are what Lewis was fighting against on Bloody Sunday back in 1965. Before we go, we want to talk to you about something radical.
1: If we are really going to be about evolving this society, then we need to teach social justice now like we teach STEM subjects. Well, there's a new brownie
0: troop in California, and these girls aren't selling cookies. or learning to sew.
1: We think they're being exploited. Wouldn't it be better for them to learn friendship skills? Would you want your kids being a part of a group like that?
0: It's a documentary called We Are the Radical Monarchs, directed by Linda goldstein Knowlton. It tells the story of a group of girls who are fighting for social justice and become empowered and learn how to love themselves as girls of color. When you look at them, the girls who are between eight and 13 years old are sporting brown berets and wearing brown vests with badges that say things like Black Lives Matter or Radical Pride. But when you listen to them, They're talking about being bullied, or being worried about how they look, or talking to local legislators about issues that are important to them. And they're also asking questions like, Back then, was it worse with police brutality than it is right now? Here's co-founder Ana Yvette Martinez on why she feels that engaging with youth on difficult topics is so important. We have to start
1: younger and i think that young people are always underestimated in terms of what they know and what they experience and so i think that it's so imperative to have those conversations at a younger age
0: the girls earn their badges for completing units about climate change disability justice and how to be an ally to the lgbtq community they learn how to code and make an app explore cultural traditions Learn about consent and body positivity, and come up with solutions for community issues that are important to them. Since the radical monarchs launched in 2014, they've grown to have several more troops in California. So if you're not nearby a local troop, here's co-founder Marilyn Holland Quest's advice on how adults, from parents to teachers, can start talking about social justice to the kids in their life.
1: I think first, initially, it's important to ask the young people in your life, like, what have they heard about these topics? Like, what have they heard about George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or Black Lives Matter or the protests that are happening? Like, what have they heard about it so that you can meet them where they're at versus, like, overloading them with lots of information?
0: We Are the Radical Monarchs is available to stream now on all PBS platforms through August 19th. We get to kind of make history, or her
1: story, as we like to say it. And we get to be one tiny little part of it. Because we all know that a lot of tiny parts
0: can equal one big part. And that's all for Skim This. We'll be back in your feed again next Friday. In the meantime, let us know what questions you have about what's going on in the news right now. You can email us at audio@theskim.com or call and leave us a voicemail at 646-461-6370. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com.